Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It's the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, a humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the Roman Catholic priesthood. I've come a long way. Today's podcast is a little bit different in that it involves me being interviewed by Eamon Murphy, a humanist celebrant, and the occasion was uh, the launch of my book, In My Gut I Don't Believe, hosted by the Humanist Association of Ireland. As part of the interview, I read two episodes from the book, one of which was about the papal visit to Ireland in 1979, and the second of which is about what happens when you put 20 or 40 boys, basically 17, 18, 19-year-olds, into an all-male seminary and leave them there for years. Welcome. Thank you all very much for joining us at uh, this very special event. Uh, my name, is, as most of you will know, is Eamon Murphy. I'm the events coordinator with the Humanist Association of Ireland. And uh, I know that there's a lot of you here who have been attracted purely by our guest speaker or attracted by the very interesting subject matter. But on to the reason that we're all gathered here this evening. And as you all know, our guest is Joe Armstrong. As I say, a humanist celebrant, a writer. Uh, Joe has many other things as well. Uh, he was a weekly columnist for the Irish Times for seven years. And while he was commissioning editor with the academic publishers Peter Lang Limited, he co-founded the thriving Reimagining Ireland series, now at 100 volumes and counting. Uh, he's been married for 28 years to Ruth, long-suffering Ruth, who's also in the room today. They have a son and a daughter in their mid-20s. Um, Joe's daughter, Sarah, is joining us from England this evening. Uh, his son, John, has decided he's got far better things to be doing than gawking at his dad tonight. But uh, while we're on the topic of Joe's family, I believe we're being joined this evening by his brother, Paul, who has a, a birthday tomorrow. Uh, a birthday, that's a round number. We won't say which. And he joins us this evening from exotic Castle Blaney. So happy birthday to you, Paul. Hopefully you are here this evening. And thanks very much for joining us. Uh, the book that we're launching this evening is not Joe's first foray into telling the story, uh, telling his story, I suppose, to, to the public. His RTE documentary, which is called From Belief to Unbelief, was shortlisted for the New York Festival's World's Best Radio awards but it's the book that we're here to speak about this evening and as i said earlier what a book in my gut i don't believe um i'm just going to read a couple of reviews of it or a couple of quotations from those reviews uh, these were taken at random from amazon but a great book bravely written with such honesty by a true and caring human being another one read or part of it read i didn't intend to but i read this book in one sitting phrase searingly honest is overworked but it applies here and another one read for anyone who's ever struggled to find their true self this book is a must read now the irish times recently reviewed the book and uh, the reviewer called for quote volume two please indeed several of the reviewers that i've, I've read have, uh, have expressed uh, their enthusiasm about looking forward to a sequel but i think perhaps probably the most impressive review is from uh, the eminent professor ac grayling who described the book as a fascinating courageous and moving account of an individual leaving the trammels of religion for the good light of humanism an educative story on many levels well told now i myself reviewed the book for the irish freethinker and humanist magazine um, which is the place where it all began in some ways uh, it's within the pages of the freethinker that joe actually began serializing the story that became the book just over three years ago um, now, just I'm only going to re refer to a small part of my review, but you know, I, I was I always found myself when reading 
Joe's piece in the Freethinker each every two months. You'd finish the 800 word article and you'd be demanding more, but you'd have to wait for another few weeks to be sated. So the book, from my point of view, answered uh, sort of a secular prayer in some ways. And uh, again, I've said it to him to his face, uh, at least via Zoom. I've said it to him on the phone a couple of times. I was really blown away reading the excerpts in the Freethinker and in the book itself, blown away by Joe's honesty and candor, his ability to self-examine in, in an incredibly honest way. And it's also immediately obvious, I think, to any reader that Joe Joe's no novice writer who decided to try his hand at a, an autobiographical work. The fact that he's been writing for more than three decades is very apparent because this is not just a compelling story. This is one that's very well written as well. Uh, and it does fall to me to encourage people to buy the book. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to do it on, on Amazon uh, for Kindle paperback and hopefully by April or May, all going well. We'll have it in audio format as well, narrated by the author, the author himself, and that'll be available on audible.co.uk. But uh, enough of me speaking. That's not what anybody came here to hear. After talking for the last 10 minutes about this evening and about the book. Joe, tell us, what is the book actually about? What's the book about? That's a really good question. Well, it's about, you know, the nine years I spent. Well, it also talks about my early childhood and so on, but it's mainly about the nine years I spent studying for the priesthood. It's a self-examination. You know, the, Socrates said the unexplored life, the unexamined life is not worth living. And after the documentary, which I made with Nicolene Greer and RTE, you know, people said, well, you know, can you tell us more and so on? And I actually wanted to know more myself. Well, how did did I transition from belief to unbelief? And like in the world, you have so many people who are committed believers, as I once was, or committed atheists, or humanists, or agnostics. And I thought, well, if I were to examine my journey of this particular soul, if you want to use that word, you know, how did I transition? What were the moments? What were the insights? What were the growth opportunities? What were the regressions? What were the, you know, all of that. And also I kind of feel that when you're personal, you're universal. So, you know, it took me a long time to write the book, like let's say 25 years. And it's like Spaghetti Junction. There were so many false starts and massive, what I thought finished drafts that went nowhere. And then, you know, bottom drawer for another few years and take it out again and go with it a different way and so forth. So that's what a book is about. Let's try to unpack how people might transition from believing to unbelieving, how I did, you know, it's a memoir. You mentioned those previous drafts, and ones that you thought were finished, ones that went nowhere. I go, what was it about this one that uh, led to the, there's no other word for it really, the success uh, in finishing? And, and why, why now? I mean, is this something that is this a story that could only really have been told properly at, at this far a remove from the subject matter you're examining? Yeah, I think I think that is true. And, you know, for example, like my mother is a big subplot in the book and a very complex relationship, which I had with her. I loved her and I hated her. And as a human being trying to articulate even to myself, you know, what was that about? What was going on? And you grow up thinking that your mother is wonderful and she she's your primary educator. And, you know, I got my faith from her and my vision of the world from her and you know your mother is such a significant person next to none really in your life you mentioned the importance of, of her role not just in your life but giving you your faith mm. um similarly arthur armstrong your your father had a, a role to play there as well i remember particularly being struck by the focus in in one of the episodes in the book about talking about how your father as you describe him a manly man mm. and the men of the neighborhood and how you know they was so perfectly normal like in in, in those days in, in the 70s i guess to uh no problem at all expressing their, their strong catholic faith that must have 
have influenced you an awful lot as well. Huge. You know, like I was born in 1962 and everybody I knew was a Catholic. I had two cousins studying for the priesthood. I had an uncle, a priest. Everybody that I, you know, it just seemed to me that the whole world was Catholic. And we all went to Mass every Sunday. And we all went to confession on Saturday nights. And we all did Lent. And we all did, Lent, you know, rosaries at night and all that kind of stuff. It was just, you know, I've used the phrase often, but it's true. It was part of the air that we breathed. And, you know, as a child, I was taught that the truths of religion were as reliable as gravity. You know, they were of a similar status. You know, you drop an apple, it falls. Jesus is God. And then you kind of discover, well, actually, clearly there are Muslims who have different views and Hindus have different views. And yet, you know, all of those givens, and they don't all have different views about gravity. And I think you're going to read now from episode nine of it. But maybe before you do, let's kind of contextualize it for people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the uh, the charismatic renewal? It was a totally different form of belief, very enthusiastic and I got involved in that as a kid. And indeed, it was a huge thing in Ireland at the time. Yeah, that was another huge influence on my life. Episode nine. Before dawn on the 29th of September 1979, one million people, a number equal to the entire population of Dublin and about one third of the Republic's population at the time, gathered in the Phoenix Park for the first ever papal visit to Ireland. If sometimes I'd felt embarrassed because of my faith, this gargantuan assembly lent legitimacy to Catholicism, make it more socially acceptable to be a committed believer. When the Aer Lingus jet with Pope John Paul II on board flew overhead, the hair on my neck stood on end. The Pope had arrived in Ireland. The Brits had a queen. We had a Pope. He kissed Irish soil when he stepped off the plane. Later, it was said, the Pope kissed the ground and walked on women. I also made it to Galway for the Papal Youth Mass. When the Pope said, young people of Ireland, I love you. Tens of thousands of young people clapped and cheered in jubilation for 10 minutes. And we sang, he's got the whole world in his hands. And we didn't mean God, we meant the Pope. He was our superstar. Eventually, the popular singing priest, Father Michael Cleary, interrupted our spontaneous cheering and singing, saying the Pope had to get on with the Mass. Bishop Eamon Casey was on the podium too. Cleary and Casey were probably the most prominent clerics in Ireland at the time. Both had clandestine relationships and both fathered children, which, when it came to light in 1992 and 1993, caused scandal and anguish for the faithful. The cleric's duplicity sparking disaffection and doubt in the laity who felt betrayed by the clerical church. By then, I'd become convinced of the need for a married clergy, and I was struck by the innocence of many laity. I knew many wonderful priests who had been forced to leave their priestly ministry because the church elevated the man-made law of celibacy over what it claimed to be the God-given vocation of the priesthood. But back to those innocent days, for me and for Ireland, of the papal visit. I had begun to attend a charismatic prayer meeting in St. Dulock's Retreat House in North Dublin, run by the Marist Fathers. I was impressed by a charismatic priest based there, Father Larry Duffy, who was such a powerful preacher that he was nicknamed the Laser Beam. Earnest and genuine in his faith, he prayed for hours every day and his slender frame suggested he fasted too. I believed that this man had a direct link to God, like the prophets of old. I was so influenced by him that I began to imitate his mannerisms, like other young people might copy a pop idol or a sports star. I had been mortified as a young boy when I'd been caught unawares mimicking the words and gestures of a priest saying mass, and when my father had said, we might have a priest in the family. 
But now, age 17 or 18, it was time to decide what I wanted to do with my life. Money didn't appeal to me. Buying a house, taking out a mortgage, getting into the rat race. I wanted to do something meaningful. I wanted the excitement and adventure of following Christ. I wanted to spend my life addressing the real needs of people, helping them too to find meaning in their lives. The Mars Father seemed to me to be the place where it was all happening. The congregation was open to what I thought the Holy Spirit was doing anew in our day. I liked that the Marists did various ministries, retreats, parishes, foreign missions and schools. And so I wouldn't need to decide yet what work I would do as a priest. I heard that their seminary was vibrant with many young men like me testing their vocations. And Father Larry Duffy, my hero, was the Marist vocations director. During an all-night vigil, I told him I wanted to be a priest. Praise be God, he said. He asked me about my family, and I told him I had an uncle a priest in South Africa and two cousins training to be priests. He explained that if I joined, I could see if I liked it and that the Maris would be looking at me to see if I was suitable. He said there would be entrance tests, but he was sure I'd be grand. And meanwhile, I could take a trip out to the seminary. It was an open day for new entrants coming up soon. I wanted to be a priest more than anything else in the world. Father Duffy placed his hands on my head and prayed that many souls will be saved by your ministry. Great, Joe. And uh, the reason I suppose I suggested that particular piece is because not only does it finish on, uh, on that note of you deciding that this is what you wanted to do with your life, but I think the section does a very good job of, of capturing the time and the frame of mind of the, uh, the young Joe Armstrong. You know, one of the things that struck me from the book about the mindset of the teenaged Joe was, uh, pardon me for saying, a general kind of intolerance of people who didn't share your Catholic faith. Like, I'm sure we've all held views in the past yeah. that we would be embarrassed to look back on now. Yeah. I mean, is that the case now when you reread uh, some of the stuff that's in your journal? Yeah, well, I mean, I I acknowledge that at the, the very, very beginning, like in the preface, I say that as a pious teenager, I had a row with a school friend who thought that the laws of the state shouldn't reflect the laws of any church. And he wondered if we religious people would prefer those with differing views to emigrate. And yes, I thought to my shame, as the church reflected the mind of God, I thought it would have been better if those who disagreed emigrated, leaving behind a society more attuned to God's plan. Having what you see as God's higher values on your side blinds people. It blinded me to rational debate. And, you know, I would have campaigned in favour of the first abortion referendum, which I'm horrified about now. So like as a Catholic, I couldn't see, yeah, but that's your Catholic view. Why would you be wanting to impose that on other people who don't share those views? And I couldn't see that. And I think for a lot of religious people, and I don't mean them all, but for a lot of religious people, the blinkers are there. You know, this is God's way and let's impose it on other people. And it, it's harder for a religious person to realize. They just presume that their view is correct. It's infallible. It comes from the church. It comes from God. So anybody who disagrees has got to be wrong. How long does it take for you to change that mindset? Because I'm not really giving a spoiler here because I'm sure you'll address it at a different part of the interview, but the book ends with you leaving the seminary prior to ordination. Of course, you were never ordained. We now know that you're a humanist celebrant. But um, that doesn't mean that you left as an atheist who didn't believe in the Catholic faith. So how long does it take one to go from the extremes that you speak about there to much more liberal worldview? Within the book, it's quite clear, certainly very clear to me the bits where my naive faith is being chipped away and you know it's being replaced by a less naive faith but equally to my view it's still insubstantial way of viewing reality 
Maybe just to go back to um, what we spoke about very briefly earlier and your relationship with your mother, who you describe, uh, I think appropriately, as a very a key subplot to the book. And you met, you admit to simultaneously both loving and, and hating her. Do you want to kind of go into maybe a little bit more detail for... Yeah. Well, I, I remember as a teenager, you know, going to confession and for the first time ever using the word hate. It was hard to even name that word that I felt hate for my mother because I loved her. But you can love somebody and hate them. And to try to recognize that and to realize that that feeling doesn't make you unacceptable. And I remember to fast forward the last six months of the of my nine years in summary, I went to a counselor and my relationship with my mother was a huge part of that experience. And I still had difficult. I mean, you're studying for the priesthood. Honor your father and your mother. Do not turn from your own kin. Like any time a priest would give a sermon, it was, you know, obey your parents. And here was I studying for the priesthood, you know, ready to promote that message to other kids. And I was thinking, this is so unfair for kids like me who might have very ambiguous feelings about a parent. And, you know, just coming to terms with that and trying to rethink not only my relationship with faith and religion, but also rethink my relationship with my mother was one of the hardest things I ever did, you know, and it was really, really, really hard. Working through that relationship was a huge part of my experience in the seminary and indeed throughout my life. Do you want to uh, move on to the second reading of the evening? Thanks for this one, Eamon. <laughs> All right. So the, the kind of deal I made with the reader was that I wanted to be honest. And, and loads of reviewers have said that I'm very honest. So Eamon has chosen a particularly embarrassing piece, but it's nevertheless good, you know, Somebody suggested to me that that the title was long, that instead of being called, in oh my God, I don't believe it should be called Dare to Be Me. And if if you wonderful guests who are here tonight take anything away from this event and from my book, if you read it, but from this event, it would be Please Dare to Be You. Episode 29. Our superior father, John Hannon, a great man, by the way, had warned us in Novitius that celibates needed human love and friendship. Non-exclusive, non-genital, spiritual friendships are good for celibates. So long as the relationship remains open and honest, there are risks. When you're 19, a sexual attraction can occur. Are you saying we could fall in love with one another? Asked a novice. Yes, he had said. Freud taught us that relatively few people are exclusively heterosexual or homosexual. Most people are somewhere along the spectrum. Even if this is theoretical to you now, before long it won't be. In winter 1982, it happened to me. My journal of that autumn shows an earnest 20-year-old struggling with religious endeavour, disappointed with meditation. Meditation difficult. Distracted a fair bit. Ended by thanking God for a day. Not very successful. I visited my father's grave on All Souls Day. I may still have been having the recurring dream of his being about to tell me something important, but culminating in the silence of the grave. I wrote to the Salvation Army, a missing persons office, letting them know that we had found my brother David. I had a new spiritual director, an honourable Marist. On the 5th of November, after making my confession to him, I like this bit, after making my confession to him, we discussed my occasional, quote-unquote, atheistic tendencies and views. <laughs> Ah, yes. The rush was there from the start. However, I remember being underwhelmed by his argument that I could doubt God, quote, but that doesn't alter his existence. Applied to the proverbial flying pink elephant, doubting the airborne proboscidean, you know, to do with elephants, doesn't alter his existence either. He still doesn't exist. And no sensible adult stakes his life on belief in Dumbo. 
My new pastoral work was to befriend two long-term inmates in Arbor Hill Prison. I found it intimidating walking into the austere building, its massive steel doors clanging shut, locked behind me. We had privileged access to the men, meeting them alone in their cells. Unlike the String Them Up Brigade, I realised that I was no better than these prisoners, just luckier. Although I have in recent years won awards for public speaking, I was far from that in my early years in Milltown. Faced with a packed congregation during Novitius, my legs used to shake dramatically, my mouth dried, my lungs clamped, and I blushed like a beacon. The problem remained two years later. I journaled in November 1982. On Saturday at Eucharistic Adoration, I had a near heart attack prior to reading. An entry for the 24th of November reads, almost vomiting, with nerves about driving tests. But the mood changes with an entry of the 30th of November. Lord, praise be your name now and forever. My pass for work at the prison had gone well the previous night. I passed my driving test and I thanked God for, quote, the pleasure and the company and the companionship of home on Sunday. For sure, this could not refer to my mother. And so I deduce that a confrere had accompanied me. And then Saturday, Alleluia, Amen, effuses the journal. Thank you, Lord, I praise you for the beauty and the treasure of my precious hours and moments spent in deep intimacy. Lest the reader think that I had just lost my virginity, I had not. Far from it. The intimacy in question was the first budding of a short-lived, six-month, on-off, affective and emotional crush. But something nevertheless more real than cultivating a relationship with an imagined pink elephant. My journal records my inner certainty, stability and delight and my awareness of beauty and love. When you take 20 virile young men, most of them aged between 17 and 19, and leave them together for years in a seminary, sexuality will inevitably manifest. I was on a diet of celibacy and loneliness. I had a need for affectivity that was not being met. I desired an exclusive relationship which wasn't permitted in a church that valued celibacy above the priesthood. And in this emotional barrenness, I got a glimpse of what my life could be like, freed from isolation and religious constraint. On the 1st of December 1982, I recorded, I've read over 100 pages, indeed closer to 120 pages, of An Experience of Celibacy by Keith Clark since bedtime last night. That recently published book, which had just arrived in the Milton Library, was a big hit among seminarians. I was experiencing my loneliness. My desire for sexual pleasure was heightened. I craved an emotionally interdependent, physically expressive relationship. And I realised that these normal yearnings could not be fulfilled while committed to the vow of celibacy. On the 5th of December, I felt the solution was praying and presenting myself to God at such a time as tonight when I want so much to touch another. Humbled, I prayed that my celibacy could testify to the primacy of the love of God in my life. But all I felt was a lonely, burning desire. And that piece brilliantly touches on uh, one of the reasons for your eventual abandoning of the plans to become a priest, that, that aspect of celibacy. I mean, you said, you mentioned in the book that you think maybe you entered the seminary at too young an age. Had, had you taken to the time to... I honestly think that if people had any kind of decent sexual experience before entering a seminary, they wouldn't be entering a seminary. There were 20 in my novices, 20. There were three who were 17. Most of us were 18. You know, I was as naive and utterly, totally inexperienced. I hadn't a clue. 
and dash that with all the religiosity and all the the stuff you pick up as a kid about sex being evil and the Virgin Mary and all that kind of stuff and confession and don't even think an impure thought and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, masturbation was actually a huge element of life in the seminary. And we were told, oh no, you're not allowed to do that either. Celibacy, loneliness, desire for intimacy, mad. And you can't be the only seminarian or priest to harbour these feelings. Um, of course not. No. You know, to what extent do you think that sort of enforced celibacy, as you call it, elevating a man-made rule above? It is. And ultimately, like that was actually what tipped me from, you know, when I left the seminary, I was still a believer. And I got very involved in the campaign for a married priesthood and for women priests. And I was really passionate about that. And, and like Ruth and I, we attended mass conducted by married priests and their little kids there. And the priest was like, they were brilliant priests, brilliant priests, pastoral to their core. And the kind of priests that nobody could have any problem with. Just wonderful priests. I can picture this guy still, Luis Oliver. And, you know, him saying mass. And I just thought to myself, bring the bloody Pope in here and let him see these priests who are good priests. And they were committed to the good aspects of, of the priesthood and the good aspects of Christianity. And I just found it scandalous. And ultimately, the reality that the church elevates what they admit to be the man-made law of celibacy over what they claim to be the God-given vocation of the priesthood, to me, was one of the most significant things which I thought it's all a load of and, you know, lest people listening who haven't read the book yet, and I would recommend that they do, think that um, this book is um, as serious in tone as all the stuff we've been talking about with no um, with no relief. There's some very funny bits in it as well. And I, I, I keep thinking back to uh, one part, which in a way pokes a bit of fun at the unquestioning faith of, uh, of, ma- of many Catholics. Uh, the kind of thing that, you know, even early in, in your time in the seminary, you um, you expressed an awful lot of disdain for. And uh, it's a story I think you, you know, what I'm talking about of you on the uh, on the bus to knock. Do you want to tell uh, the attendees a little bit about that? Well, do you, I can read. It's, it's just half an episode. I can read that if you like. Sure. Shall I? So, the 15th of June, 1984, morning prayer had lost any meaning for me. This is sort of halfway through the book. I journaled. It didn't matter if I got up. It didn't matter if I didn't. I saw cynicism in Milton about faith, observing what it was that it wasn't just me, but others, other members of the community too, who doubted. My prayer is dead. I journaled on 21st June. I feel depressed. I'm lonely. I feel like I'm in limbo. I have no particular inclination to have spiritual direction. Celibacy is as hard as as hard as before. Desire is high, pining want. I was invited to accompany a busload of middle-aged and elderly women on a pilgrimage to the Marian Shrine of Knock. Against my will, I was expected by the tour organiser to play the role of the devout seminarian leading several rosaries on the bus. And when we stopped for lunch at a hotel, she expected me to sit at the top table. This was how priests could develop a sense of entitlement. It all felt wrong. The gospel as a story of Jesus telling the disciples not to take a place of honour. And unwilling to accept the role into which I was being cast, I declined the invitation to top table, choosing instead to sit among the pilgrims. But the organiser insisted I move up and I felt forced into the stereotype. I did not want to play the role. I wanted to be authentic. I couldn't identify with the devotions, devotion of the pilgrims on the bus or at the shrine as I rattled off rosary after rosary. I tried discussing with the organiser the need for an informed, intelligent and critical faith. She was appalled by my suggestion that Catholics, Catholics, should think for themselves. And she said, sure, then we'd be just like Protestants. <laughs> that would be just like Protestants. I thought, oh my God. <laughs> 
it's it's uh, it's a great piece and uh, I, i've gone back and read it a couple of times in my gut i don't believe a memoir by joe armstrong is now available on amazon you can contact us at podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at losingmyrelig1, that's at losingmyrelig and the figure one. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losingmyreligion. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash losingmyreligion. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to follow us so you don't miss future podcasts. Happy days. Happy days.